0: Okay, Psalm 13, to the chief musician, a Psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God, enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved, but I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Okay, we're in Joshua 5 now, moving right along. It's been uh, kind of quick. It's been quicker than Deuteronomy so far. Joshua 5, and we're going to do verses 1 through 9 today. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness, till all the people who were men of war, who came out of Egypt, were consumed, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised the sons of Israel, whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised on the way." So it was, when they had finished circumcising all the people, that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. As a fun note concerning this chapter, when we were in Numbers 9, 1 through 14, the sermon was entitled, The Lord's Passover, which was recorded on 18 November 2018. I mentioned a passage from this chapter in Joshua. Off the top of my head, I said that those born in the wilderness were not circumcised. I then jokingly said the reason for that will be addressed when we get to Joshua chapter 5, hopefully around early to mid 2022. How about them apples? I didn't even know I said that and somebody sent me the link to the video and said, "Look at what you say right here." Concerning the passage today, as regards the end of the time of wilderness wandering, the scholar Kyle somewhat correctly states what the situation for Israel was at that time and what it meant for them as a people. I don't remember what Kyle's view on Israel for today is. I may have read it and forgotten it or i may not have come across it yet in his commentary and since i typed the introduction to the sermons last i was just too tired to go trying to find out it doesn't really matter what he thought because all that matters is what the bible says having said that if everyone read his commentary agreed with it and then understood the typology of what the passages since numbers 14 anticipate the doctrine of replacement theology would not exist. Even without the typology, and if we only had the New Testament writings, it should be painfully obvious, even to the poorest of scholars, that Israel has not been replaced by the church. It is simply in a non-permanent state of punishment. Hmm. But bad doctrine is easy. It is often satisfying, and it eliminates the need to care about the state of the Jew for those who just don't care about The state of the Jew, Kyle says, and it's a little long, but try to pay attention and you'll see what I was referring to. This clearly means that not only was the generation that came out of Egypt sentenced to die in the wilderness because of its rebellion against the Lord and therefore rejected by God, but the sons of this generation had to bear the whoredom, meaning the apostasy of their fathers from the Lord for the period of 40 years until the latter had been utterly consumed. That is to say, during all this time, they were to endure the punishment of rejection along with their fathers. Now, remember, this is typologically looking at Israel rejecting Jesus Christ and the past 2,000 years of their punishment. With this difference alone, that the sons were not to die in the wilderness, but were to be brought into the promised land after their fathers were dead. The sentence upon the father's, that their bodies should fall in the desert was unquestionably a rejection of them on the part of God, an abrogation of the covenant with them. The punishment was also to be borne by their sons. And hence, the reason why those who were born in the desert, by the way, were not circumcised. My friend Trent emailed me yesterday. And he says, if you're not going to talk about why they weren't circumcised and why they were then circumcised, please address that. Well, Kyle did it for me. As the covenant of the Lord with the fathers was abrogated, the sons of the rejected generation were not to receive the covenant sign of circumcision. Nevertheless, this abrogation of the covenant with the generation that had been condemned was not a complete dissolution of the covenant relation. Think of Israel today, so far as the nation as a whole was concerned, since the whole nation had not been rejected but only the generation of men that were capable of bearing arms when they came out of Egypt, whilst the younger generation which had grown up in the desert was to be delivered from the ban— which rested upon it as well and brought into the land of Canaan when the time of punishment had expired. All of this is going to be seen in the coming Joshua sermons up through Joshua 9. I've got somebody shaking her head because she has seen these because she corrects my abominable typing errors. But I can tell you that if you think that this is just him saying it, me agreeing with it, the typology will bear it out. Okay. I want to say before I go on with his quote that not everything he says is exact and I will correct it in a minute. Okay. Okay. For this reason, the Lord did not withdraw from the nation every sign of his grace, but in order that the consciousness might be sustained in the young and rising generation, that the covenant would be set up again with them when the time of punishment had expired, he left them not only the presence of the pillar of cloud and fire, but also the manna and other tokens of his grace." The continuance of which, therefore, cannot be adduced as an argument against our view of the time of punishment as a temporary suspension of the covenant. Our text first comes from Hebrews chapter 3. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. With just a few amendments to Kyle's thoughts, he is right. I would disagree with the idea of an abrogation of the covenant and the idea of a temporary suspension of the covenant. In other words, it is true that what occurred was not a complete dissolution of the covenant relation so far as the nation as a whole was concerned, but more, it is not a dissolution of the covenant for any of them. That is exactly why they wandered in the wilderness. It was because they were under the punishment of the covenant, and it is exactly why Israel to this day is under the punishment of the covenant. The same is true with Israel Of Today, they have been under the curses of the covenant and they remain under the curses even now. Yes, they are prospering in the land of Israel. That is a temporary prospering until the time of the tribulation period. The lack of being circumcised does not show an abrogation of the covenant. Rather, it shows their state under the covenant, a state which is out of proper covenant relationship. Everybody got that? God did not reject the nation but only those who rejected him. If he rejected the nation, we would not have this guy sitting in the church today, would we? Everybody got this? And God has not rejected his people Israel to this day. He has just rejected those who rejected him and those who continue to reject him. Any who come outside of the camp at this time can be saved. Someday the entire camp will be saved. This is the greatness of God the disobedient nation will be made whole again some day, and disobedient us, meaning those who have come to Christ for salvation shall be made whole some day as well. Both are absolute assurances that are to be found in His superior Word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through His word today, and may His glorious name ever be praised. I've got two thoughts for you today. The first is the hill of foreskins. It's verses 1 through 5. The words of Joshua 5 should be considered in conjunction with the final words of Joshua 4. There it said, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty. That you may fear the Lord your God forever. What is said there immediately begins to be realized now. Verse 1 So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan, more literally it reads, and it was, according to hearing, all kings, the Amorites who inside the Jordan westward. The people group is spoken of in the singular. Despite being many tribes, they are a united people. This is then further explained by their location, which is westward of the Jordan. The Amorite people under Sihon and Og that were east of the Jordan had already been subdued in battle. But more Amorites lay to the west. In other words, their own people under these great kings had been obliterated. Now, the same group that had obliterated their people to the east was on their side of the river, and the Israelites were surely ready to snuff them out as well further. Verse 1 continues, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea. Again, it is singular, and all kings, the Canaanite, who upon the sea. Together, these two people groups, the Amorite and the Canaanite, stand for all of the people groups that are mentioned elsewhere, such as the Hittites, Jebusites, and so on. The term upon the sea means that they lived on its shores. Which sea is being referred to is debated, but Numbers 13 says the following. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Even with this, it is hard to be dogmatic, but it appears to be what is currently being referred to. No matter what, the Amorite and the Canaanite are the two predominant groups in Canaan proper. These groups, verse 1 continues, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel. The event would be known and talked about throughout the land almost immediately. It is not something that could be hidden from the ears of everyone. Knowing the account of the Red Sea, as Rahab already acknowledged they did, would make the event even more pronounced and even more terrifying. What was Once an account that could have been considered fiction was now validated by the cutting off of the waters of the Jordan. As the Lord had done this, it would truly shout out doom to all who heard about what had transpired. They hadn't just forded the river, but they had walked on dry ground. Verse 1 continues, until we had crossed over. Many manuscripts here say until they had crossed over. The Masoretic text supplies that as the verbal reading as well. Because of this, many translations also say they. But the true reading is probably we. If it is Joshua who wrote the words, it would be natural to say this. If it was someone else, the same is still true. The writer was an Israelite, and he has written the account as such. Verse 1 continues, that their heart melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. A literal reading would show the closeness to what had said even before Israel's crossing of the Jordan. And melted their heart, and no is there again spirit before sons Israel. It is very close to what Rahab had said, And we heard and melted our hearts, and no stood again spirit in man from before you. One can see the terror which already existed has come around again, and is even multiplied by the events that are now taking place. With that noted, something important next happens. Verse 2, At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, As before, there is a direction from the Lord that will be followed by obedience to the command. A purposeful act is directed to take place, and it is one that anticipates something that is still awaiting fulfillment today. The pictures of the past anticipate events that really will occur as redemptive history continues. Be sure of this. Next week, I'll explain these verses, and you'll see that, and you'll see it in the next chapters to come. Verse 2 continues, make flint knives for yourselves. Make to you, singular, make to you, swords, rocks. Some translations paraphrase this saying sharp swords or sharp knives. Saying knives is technically correct, but it is the same word translated as sword, coming from the verb harav, meaning to be dry or dried up. It is also identical to the name horeb, the mountain where the law was given. It is also connected to the word used to describe the dry ground of the Jordan in Joshua 3.17 and 4.18, and the dry ground of the Red Sea back in Exodus 14.21. Obviously, we're seeing typology here. We'll talk about that next week. Also, the word rock is the same word used to describe the Lord several times in the Song of Moses and in typology elsewhere. Together, the two appear to be forming a picture for us to consider and which will be explained as we continue. As an interesting side note, there is an addition to the Greek translation of Joshua 24:30 that is not found in the Hebrew translation. Your Bible will not have this, but I'm going to read it to you. And they buried him by the borders of his inheritance. This is burying Joshua in Thamnar Sarach, in the Mount of Ephraim, northward of the Mount of Galad. There they put with him into the tomb in which they buried him, the knives of stone with which he circumcised the children of Israel in Galgalah when he brought them out of Egypt as the Lord appointed them and they are there to this day. That's a very interesting addition and you have to wonder why is that in there? Joshua is to take these flint knives, verse 2 continues, and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. Rather than again, it reads, Veshuv mol et bene Yisrael shenit, and return. circumcise sons Israel second. During the time of the wilderness wanderings, meaning judgment upon the people, which began in Numbers 14, the people had not received the sign of the covenant. As such, this was the first requisite to be accomplished in order to be considered as restored under the covenant. The word second is given to define who was to be circumcised, the explanation of which is given in the coming verses. Verse 3, so Joshua made flint knives for himself, and made to him Joshua swords, rocks. In exact compliance with the command, Joshua alone is said to have made them, regardless as to whether others helped or actually made them or not, the text speaks only of Joshua doing this. The same is true with the next clause. Verse 3 continues, and circumcised the sons of Israel. Ve'yamal et bene Yisrael, and he, singular, Joshua, and circumcised sons Israel. Considering the huge number of people to be circumcised, it seems impossible for one man to accomplish this. In fact, Assuming there were only 600,000 males eight days or older that needed to be circumcised, probably a low estimate, it would take more than a decade for one person working nonstop to do so. An internet search says a circumcision takes about 10 minutes to perform. That comes out to 100,000 hours for 600,000 men. That, in turn, comes out to 4,166 days. That's over 10 years. Even if Joshua did this in one minute per person, it would still be well over an entire year working 24 hours a day without any break to do this. Obviously, for this to have been completed in a day, many people would have to be involved. And yet, it only says that Joshua did it. As the representative of his people, it is acceptable to say it this way, but it is necessary for the typology that is being conveyed. As for the location, it is given a name because of the immense number of skins. It is, verse 3 continues, at the hill of the foreskins. El givat ha aralot. Into hill the foreskins. The Aramaic Bible says in the hill of the uncircumcised. The word means both foreskin and uncircumcised because having foreskin implies being uncircumcised. Hence, their translation looks to the state of the past, toward the state of the present, and into the future. Almost all commentaries state that the name of the hill where this was accomplished was afterward called by this name. However, due to the incredible number of foreskins, I would say, this is my thought on it, that the hill was made out of foreskins, which were then buried. It would make a very large mound. Again, An internet search says a foreskin is about three inches long. Assuming that there are 600,000 people, again, this is probably a low estimation of children from eight days old and up, that comes out to 1,041.7 cubic feet. That alone is its own hill. Therefore, my assumption is that the hill is formed out of them, and it receives its name because of this. It's only speculation, but it adds emphasis to the enormity of what has occurred. Regardless of this, either way, a reason is given for what has transpired. Verse 4, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. Veze, Hadavar, Ashur, Mal, Yehoshua. And this, the word which circumcised Joshua. Again, the act of circumcision is credited to Joshua, regardless as to whoever participated in the performing of the rite. He is the leader, and it is he alone who is named as the primary force behind the action. This act was accomplished because, verse 4 continues, all the people who came out of Egypt who were males. It reads, all the people, the goers out from Egypt, the males. The word is zakar, a male. It comes from the verb zakar, meaning to remember. Hence, they are the remembered. Remembered. As being the most noteworthy sex because it speaks of the form which defines him as a man. In other words, it is what visibly defines a man as a man. As a man, he is the head of the woman and the one from whom the woman was made. It is the man who was to be circumcised according to Genesis 17 and that which was later included right in the law of Moses. As has been relayed in numerous sermons, circumcision anticipates Christ. Man is the one who was given the command in the garden and who then sinned. It is implicit in Scripture that it is through the issue of the man that sin transfers. But there is more to the symbolism than that. In the rite of circumcision, the organ of man, that which is the organ of remembrance, a picture is being developed. When a man is circumcised, the form of the organ is changed, and thus the organ of remembrance is changed. Is anybody seeing Christ in this? It is all over this passage. I'll tell you that. Wait till next week. It is now a memorial, a sign that reflects the coming of Christ who would be without sin. The line of sin is cut in him, and this is what is anticipated in the rite. These men had not been circumcised, and thus they were considered unclean in this regard. There was no connection to the Messiah in their uncircumcision. Keep thinking of Israel of today. Keep thinking of them and you will get the typology. It is this that Joshua is now correcting. But more, it is what has already been implicitly seen in Joshua 4, where the word zikaron or memorial was used. That also comes from zakar or to remember. At that time, in explanation of the 12 stones that were set up, we noted that the pile was a memorial in itself to the covenant that is derived from what occurred. And the covenant was set forth as 12 stones 12 being the perfection of government or of governmental perfection one cannot have a government without a body to be governed those men zakar who were in the wilderness and who died did so according to their state of remembrance as if uncircumcised even if they were circumcised in the flesh those that are now being circumcised form this new body represented by that memorial zikaron As males, they stand as representative of all of the people, women included. Those males who died in the wilderness are next defined as, verse 4 continues, all the men of war. Ko'anshe ha all men the war. Here, a different word for man is used, enosh. It is a word coming from anash, meaning to be weak or sick. As such, it is a mortal. Being men of war, it signifies their age as being acceptable for battle. These mortal men, verse 4 continues, had died in the wilderness on the way, after they had come out of Egypt. (inaudible) Had died in the wilderness, in the way, in their coming, out from Egypt. This is referring to those who had rebelled against the Lord and who had been sentenced to die in the wilderness. It excludes Joshua... Caleb, and those who are not of age at the time. Here's what it says in Numbers 14. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. Keep thinking of Israel rejecting Jesus, okay? All of you who are numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. You shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in those alive and who were 19 and younger had obviously been circumcised, and so they would not be included in the number. But everyone younger than approximately 38.8 years old would have been uncircumcised based on those who departed Sinai in Numbers 10 verse 11. Now it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month, in the second year, that the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of the testimony, and then they went off. On their journey towards Canaan. These people lived out their lives in a state of uncircumcision, along with those who were sentenced because of the sins of their fathers. The details continue with the next words. Verse 5 For all the people who came out had been circumcised. This is referring to those in the previous verse. The structure of the Hebrew indicates that everyone who was born in Egypt and who had subsequently departed in the Exodus had been circumcised according to the customs handed down by Moses. On the other hand, it next says, verse 5 continues, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. The translation is not clear enough because of the time frame involved. And all the people, the born, plural, in the wilderness, in the way, in their coming out from Egypt, no circumcised. It isn't that the people had come out of Egypt and were no longer coming out of Egypt. The entire process from Exodus until they arrived in Canaan is considered as coming out. Until they entered, they were on their way out of Egypt. It is an important point to consider. Keep thinking of Israel today. As for the words of verse 2, they are explained in what is stated here in verses 4 and 5. There it said, and return, circumcise sons Israel second. It is referring to circumcising the second generation not a second circumcising of the people. The generation that had rejected the Lord was punished according to the word of the Lord. Here's what it says in Numbers 32. So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, and he had made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. This is seen to be correct in the next words, and it will be seen in the typology next week as well. And it prefigures what is being seen in type and picture, which will be looked at later. Circumcise your hearts to the Lord this day. Trust him and believe his spoken word. This is the thing you are to obey. Attentively pay heed to what you have heard, and the Lord will roll the reproach from you. He will put you in a right standing once again. Don't do those things your fathers were prone to do don't be like those disobedient men. He offers you restoration if you will just pay heed. Be attentive to the word you have heard. Live your lives rightly in word and in deed. Yes, be sure to live according to his word. Our second thought today, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's verses 6 through 9. Verse 6, for the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness The 40-year period is the total time in the wilderness, even though the actual sentencing only came after the transgression recorded in Numbers 14.33. That was well over a year after the Exodus. This 40-year period was noted several times in Deuteronomy as well. This time of wandering was given, verse 6 continues, till all the people who were men of war, who came out of Egypt, were consumed. It is incorrect. It refers to the nation not individual people. Once again, they translated it wrong. Until finished, all the nation, men, the war, the comers out from Egypt. As we saw in Joshua 4, the term ha is used at times when speaking of the nations of Gentiles and the nation of Israel when they are in a state of disobedience. That is exactly what is seen here with this unbelieving nation. And so, the sentence was upon the entire nation, which is then broken down into the men of war, meaning those old enough to be accountable for their actions and who represent all the people by not entering Canaan in order to possess the land. As it next says, verse 6 continues, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. Asher Bekol Yehovah, which no heard in voice Yehovah. The word obey is a correct translation. The word means to hear, but in hearing there is to be belief in the word. That is equated to obedience to the voice. This did not happen. That was clearly seen in our text verse where the words obey and belief were both used to describe them. They're being used synonymously here. I went through that in many sermons in Deuteronomy. You need to remember that for this understanding of the typology. Verse six continues To whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us. The Hebrew is a bit more precise whom swore Jehovah to them to not show them the land which swore Jehovah to their fathers to give us. Notice again that the first person to us is used. The Lord had sworn to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the land would be given to them, but due to their lack of faith, it was denied them. This land is, verse 6 continues, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the only time that the phrase is mentioned in the book of Joshua. It was mentioned six times in Deuteronomy, and every time it was accompanied by a note concerning the fathers in the immediate context. That is the same now in Joshua. It is a good land and one that comes by promise. As this is the only time the term is used in Joshua, it would be good to review its meaning again. A land flowing with milk and honey implies richness and fertility. Milk comes from cows, and so it means abundant pasture lands. Honey comes from bees, which pollinate flowers, and so it implies all sorts of fruit trees, herbs, and flowers. We got somebody here that has his own beehives, okay? He knows this. They go out and they pollinate all over the place, and by doing that, you have a productive land full of fruits and flowers and herbs and all that kind of stuff and more. For Israel, the term a land flowing with milk and honey will also produce a spiritual connotation. For them, it doesn't just speak of the physical abundance, but also of the spiritual abundance because of the Lord and because they are the Lord's people through whom the word of God comes. The word of God is said to be sweeter than honey. It is also equated with milk, which nourishes. Thus, this is a reference to that as well. The land would literally flow with milk and honey for sustaining Israel's physical lives. It would also flow with milk and honey for sustaining their spiritual lives. All of this was being given to them, but it had been denied to those who failed to believe the voice of the Lord. For those now entering, they had done nothing to deserve it, but it was simply an act of grace based upon a promise to their fathers. The Lord promised, He has fulfilled, and He is now delivered. Think of Israel. In the future. With that noted, it next says, verse 7, Then Joshua circumcised their sons, whom he raised up in their place. This confirms the words of verse 3, once again stating that Joshua accomplished the action. In reality, this could be accomplished by others, though, such as when Paul circumcised Timothy in Acts 16. As such, the procedure could have been done in a rather short amount of time. For the typology, however, only Joshua is mentioned as accomplishing the fact. The reason for this rite is next stated again, verse 7, For they were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised on the way. As we noted in the introduction, Kyle was partly right in his comments there. The punishment was to be borne by the sons. As such, they were not circumcised. It didn't mean that they were not under the covenant, but that they were not in a right standing under the covenant. This is exactly what took place and why no circumcision occurred. It is also a perfect match to the typology that we have seen and that we continue to see concerning Israel of today. Several points for both the wilderness generation and the generation who rejected Christ can be noted. One, this is a witness to the Lord's acceptance of the people as being in a right covenant relationship. The sign of circumcision testifies to it. As such, the guilt of the fathers would no longer be laid upon them. Two, they would now be acceptable to observe the Passover. Guess what they're going to do? They're going to observe the Passover. And three, with the sign of the covenant upon them, they would now be granted that which was promised to the fathers. With this right complete, it next says, verse 8, so it was when they had finished circumcising all the people. Again, it refers to the nation, not individual people. And it came to pass according to which finished all the nation to be circumcised. Okay, everybody got that? These errors in translation are maddening because you cannot see the typology otherwise. The corporate nature of the words is not to be missed. If a bunch of people from other nations came together, you could say all the people who came today were circumcised. But with the words here, it is a corporate entity comprised of individuals. After this occurred, it came to pass, verse 8 continues, that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. And they sat in their place, in the camp, until they were living. There appears to be an irony in the words here. In the previous verse, it said, while speaking of the sons replacing the disobedient generation and their sons, he raised up in their place, it now says of those sons and they sat. So you got raised up, sat in their place. Tachtam, in the camp. There's a pun being made on these people. Despite the pain of healing, the words are reminiscent of the words of Psalm 133, where the same word, yashav, or sit, is used. It speaks of those who are united as one and the blessing of sitting together in that state. If one understands the typology here in Joshua, the psalm could not be more perfect to the occasion. Think of the typology you know is coming as I'm reading this. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell, to sit down. Okay, that word, together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The fathers had died. The Lord raised up sons in their place, and they sat in their place until they were living. As for the time of healing, it is known that it takes between seven and ten days for a person to heal from this rite. That is a very important precept to consider in a coming Joshua sermon. This is an, oh, here it is. This is an important point to consider when we get to (laughs) next week's verses. This is seen, for example, in Genesis 34. Here's what it says in Genesis 34. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the people and killed all the males. The reason why that's important and the reason why I wasn't sure which sermon it is in is because I have three sermons in my head at all times plus one that I just typed the week before. And so I don't want you to miss this. I want you to pay attention when I say something like that. That's a very important point because it's something that not one scholar I saw clued into. Not one. And it is a great point of theology. Man, is it great. Because of this, what happened with Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, when they killed this whole town, I suggest that what is detailed in the verses next week is not the time people may normally think it is when they're reading. Okay? What I present will be based on what has been seen and will what next be recorded. As for the rite of circumcision being complete, with this noted, the Lord again speaks. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. There are a wide variety of opinions about what the reproach of Egypt means, but in considering the typology, it does seem obvious. In Numbers 14:4, 4, it said, so they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. They had rejected Moses. This thought is repeated by Stephan in Acts 7:39. Instead of entering into the promised rest, the people had rejected the Lord. They had broken the Mosaic covenant and they had desired to go back to the bondage of Egypt, As such, they had lost the right to the sign of the covenant, circumcision. They were in a state of uncircumcision and stuck under the bondage, Galatians 4.24, go read it, of the very law that they had rejected. Think of Israel to this day and you will get the typology. This means that they were under the punishment of the law with no chance of entering into the promised rest on a national level. And the reason why I say national level is because Jews can be saved to this day. It's written right there in the book of Hebrews. It's given in typology with the people being bit in the wilderness by the snakes. Remember that? And what what did they do? Look to the serpent on the cross. So national Israel is what is being dealt with here. National Israel. With the crossing of the Jordan and with the return of the sign of circumcision, they were now restored to divine favor of Jehovah remembering the typology of the past sermons it should be evident what is being pictured if not it will be explained in the next sermon as the chapter is complete with the people back in a right covenant standing the verses for today end with verse 9 it finishes saying therefore the name of the place is called gilgal to this day as we saw in the previous sermon gilgal comes from the word gilgal meaning a wheel It thus means a circle, a wheel, or figuratively, here's what it means for the typology, liberty, as in a rolling away. You're rolling something away, you're getting liberty. This is exactly what has occurred. The people have the reproach of their actions rolled off of them, and they stand in a position of liberty because of being in a right covenant standing with the Lord. For Israel at Joshua's time, it still meant the bondage of the law was upon them. But the law provided for atonement of sins and a propitious relationship with the Lord. For what this is picturing in Christ, it goes beyond the law. Considering the previous sermons, it's perfectly evident. As we saw at the beginning of the sermon with Kyle's lengthy commentary, which was mostly correct, if people can see that what he said doesn't just apply to the wilderness generation, but to all of the time of the law, there would not be a believing Christian on the planet that would hold to replacement theology. It would be perfectly clear that once the covenant is made, God will never, ever, ever fail to uphold his side of it. Everything we have seen since Numbers 14 continues to be seen in the people and nation of Israel to this day. Their extreme unfaithfulness in no way negates the Lord's faithfulness. And if we can understand that Israel as a nation is a template for the individual believer's position in Christ, then we would not make the unfounded and egregious error in thinking that claims that a person can lose his salvation. When God casts off Israel and breaks his covenant with them, you can start worrying about your own salvation. But as he has not yet done that, through 2,000 years of unfaithfulness on their part, actually more because they were never really faithful to him, And as the book is written that tells us that he will bring them to himself, you really have no need to worry about your failing him to the point of being cut off. As this is so, we should strive all the more, not less. How perverse to even think of it, to be pleasing to him. When we fail, we can re-engage and thank him for his infinite grace for continuing to accept us through such times. This is the marvel of what God is doing in Jesus Christ. He's not just doing it to save you and that you can be assured that you're going to go to heaven. He's doing it on a national level so you can be assured that you are saved and you are going to heaven. He's doing it with a people, an entire group of people as a template for the building of his church and the people in it. And here we walk around with all these neuroses, all of these anxieties that maybe the Lord has forsaken me, Listen, you've forsaken him from the moment you became a saved believer. If it was up to you to lose your salvation, you would. But God is bigger than your neuroses and your failings and your inability to hold fast to him. I tell you what, when you have your hand on Jesus and you're holding as fast as you can and your hand slips, guess what, he's got his arm under you holding you, all right? That is the way that God works, He is a wonderful, loving God who will never break his side of the covenant. That will never happen. And it's all seen right in these chapters. I hope that you will be able to watch next week's sermon, whether you're here or not, Linda, because I have to tell you, it's wonderful. Just like the past four chapters, wonderful end to the chapter. And we're going to have more in six and seven and eight. And I typed the first half of chapter nine last Monday. I'll be typing the second half tomorrow may the Lord provide typology that's all I can say all right may he provide the typology because it is wonderful what God has done and I love to see these things I love to see his faithfulness despite all of the unfaithfulness of the people of the world our closing verse comes from Jeremiah 31 here's what I was just referring to as I closed out the sermon Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath... I will also cast off the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. It doesn't matter how much iniquity they do, he will never cast them away. And people read this book and they come to all of these funny theologies to strip away the majesty of what God is doing, bringing glory to himself. And we we take this cross and we just strip all of the glory right off of it by our poor theology. God has divorced Israel. He's forsaken them. Terrible. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross to provide eternal insecurity. That's not what he did. So the gospel is Jesus died for your sins, he was buried, and he rose again. That's the gospel. If you can simply believe that message, you will be saved. The Bible says when you believe, Ephesians 1 13 and 14, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, the promise, the guarantee. Of everlasting life. Thank God for his faithfulness. Next week is Joshua 5, 10 through 15. From their backs, it has been stripped. It is true. It's entitled The Reproach of Egypt. Part two. Thank you, Jay. That'll be our 10th Joshua sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who has defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Okay, I've got a question for you. I don't have a $50 gift certificate this week. I'm sorry you get either a ride on my YF-23 or you can drive the, the Maserati home, okay? But you still have to pay for the gas because it's too expensive. So here's my question. I want an answer to this and you can, I'll, I'll fly you around this afternoon after I finish all my video work. It'll be about 6.30 before I get done. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Let me read it to you. Can anybody cite that to me? If so, then I won't even ask you the question. (laughs) Hang on. Okay, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians 6, and we're going to go to verse 2. I'm just going to start with verse 1. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Verse 2. For he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. That's a quote, okay? And then he goes on and says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Where was he citing that from? What? No. Uh, Old Testament citation. Where was he citing that from? Isaiah. Isaiah. You're going for a flight with me today, buddy. Do you know how to fly this? Because if you do, you can take Rhoda out. Now he can fix the engine but he can't fly it so I will take you and then I'll give Rhoda a free flight behind after you okay Isaiah 49 verse 8 let me take you there so you can see it that's all I wanted it was just a simple book anybody could he called it out and only Sergio gets to fly today sorry um I got plenty of gas I could have taken you all out, but that's okay. Let's see here. What did I say? It's uh, 49, 49 verse eight. Okay, here it is. It says, um, thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages, etc." It goes on and on with beautiful words to Israel. Isaiah. Okay. Got a poem and we'll take the Lord's Supper. This is entitled The Reproach of Egypt, Part 1. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites, who were on the Jordan's west side, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea where they did abide, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel, until we had crossed over, that their heart melted, fearing things would not go so well, and there was no spirit in them any longer." because of the children of Israel, whose God is surely stronger. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourself, not for committing a crime, and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself as the task begins and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the four skins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them, all the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt, who followed Satan's tales. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Their lives were a total mess. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness, a wandering horde, till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land, not for a million in cash money, which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place that day, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people in this covenant, they were sealed, that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, this day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Amen. (sighs) Almost pushed the wrong button there. (coughs) Okay, we have Sergio back from a couple days of break. He went up and took a couple days off to uh, celebrate with his beautiful wife, their birthday. And before he left, he was one grumpy dude. He came back and he's looking fresh and young. He's got a little bit of a beard. I hope it continues to grow. But uh, it's good to have him back. And uh, he's oh, he wants to go flying. He doesn't want to do communion. So we'll, we'll go ahead and uh, uh, petition the Lord before we uh, take the communion. Heavenly Father, thank you for this precious word you have given us that gives us every assurance that we are safe in you when we come to you forgive us of our failings this is what we're doing right now lord is we're acknowledging our sins and we're acknowledging your death until you come again and so help us to carry this with us all day every day christ died for my sins help me not to be a sinner help me to be faithful in your presence but we know that when we fail there is forgiveness There is grace and there is the communion that comes between us once again as we fellowship with you. Thank you for that. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Uh, Last week I asked you the question about the... uh... Uh, what does it mean, the unworthy manner? And you explained it. And I also remember after that something that we spoke about it years ago, years ago. Okay. And what you were telling me that we have um, that the context also of the chapter was that they were taking it just to get drunk, to eat because right. they it at home. they didn't come completely missing the point of it. That's just an unworthy manner. And I forgot to mention that our conversation this time. That's okay. You got it this time. Yeah. <laughs>